It's a good time to get ready for Sunday. What follows is a preview of the scripture readings in the upcoming Sunday Masses to be celebrated in a Catholic church somewhere near you. Thanks for clicking in. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. I'm not here to preach about the scriptures. Rather, I'll be sharing some insights, background, and context gathered from theologians and scripture scholars for the sole purpose of making the scripture at Mass less obscure, more easily understood in its richness. Today, that means examining the readings that are part of the Masses on September 12, 2021, as the Church organizes our public prayer, that is, the 24th Sunday in Ordinary Time of Year B in the Lectionary Cycle. This is one of the rather rare weeks when I don't need to take the readings out of the order in which they are proclaimed at Mass in order to keep the themes together. This week there is a progression of a single core message throughout all of Sunday's scripture. I'll borrow a phrase from the brilliant Lutheran theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer and call that consistent message the cost of discipleship. In his book by that title, he wrote of cheap grace as the grace we claim for ourselves when we practice a religion in a way that allows no real challenges, a practice that makes no real demands on us. We begin with a reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Give a listen, then I'll go over some pertinent points. In Isaiah we read, the Lord God opens my ear that I may hear, and I have not rebelled, have not turned back. I gave my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who plucked my beard. My face I did not shield from buffets and spitting. The Lord God is my help, therefore I am not disgraced. I have set my face like flint, knowing that I shall not be put to shame. He is near who upholds my right. If anyone wishes to oppose me, let us appear together. Who disputes my right? Let that man confront me. See, the Lord God is my help. Who will prove me wrong? The Word of the Lord. This passage contains one of four so-called servant songs in Isaiah. In each, Christians have seen from the earliest communities of believers clear foreshadowing of the life of Jesus. We are in the 50th chapter of the book of Isaiah. We are in the 50th chapter of the book of Isaiah. It is the section of the work attributed to a prophet dubbed by scholars as Second Isaiah. Remember, the book is a work of three periods spanning about 200 years. This section was written around the time when the people of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, were exiled in Babylon. Our passage begins with an acknowledgement that the writer's ears have been opened in a way to allow him to understand his call to be a servant of God. It is written as a first-person account of faithfulness in the face of hardship and trial. It can be taken at face value as such, but it is also likely a representation of 
and an exhortation to the nation of Israel remaining strong in faith during this time of oppression. It is overall a message about faithfulness that withstands injury and even taunts the oppressor with invitations to confrontations, confident in God's presence to uphold him or uphold the nation. Along with the other three servant songs, this passage speaks of obedience to a call to serve God, regardless of there being no reward in sight for the person, the tribe, or the nation. Taken together, they vigorously disclaim any self-serving approach to a life of faith. Today, I'm throwing in a completely free, no extra charge question for you to consider relative to each of the three principal readings. You might want to make a note of them and come back to them later. If you decide to take some time now, please hit pause and fire this up again when you're done. If you don't hit pause and are lost in thought, I'm just going to keep talking and you'll have to search backward when you come back to full consciousness. So here's your first free question. Admittedly, it's a compound question. In Isaiah, the writer says, The Lord God opens my ear that I may hear. What do you think God wants you to hear today, this week? Are you willing to act on what you hear? The responsorial psalm, taken from Psalm 114, is a thanksgiving for the divine deliverance that the servant in Isaiah is steadfastly awaiting. We, with our contemporary mindset, might pick up a whiff of self-congratulation in the refrain, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I think that would be a mistake. Rather, I read the line as a pledge to constant faithfulness in the face of whatever the world brings as a challenge. The Israelites of the time would understand walking in God's presence as a wholehearted dedication of one's own life to God. The psalm itself is a thanksgiving for divine intervention on behalf of the Jewish people to accomplish and then sustain the Exodus. Nevertheless, any individual who has ever experienced God's help in a time of trial and tribulation can relate to the overwhelming gratitude being expressed here. I'll read the refrain only at the beginning and the end. Here's our psalm of the day. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice in supplication, because he has inclined his ear to me the day I called. The cords of death encompassed me, the snares of the netherworld seized upon me. I fell into distress and sorrow, and I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, save my life. Gracious is the Lord and just. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord keeps the little ones. I was brought low, and he saved me. For he has freed my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I will walk before the Lord 
in the land of the living. Now comes our second reading for this Mass, and we are at the midpoint in a five-week look at the letter of James. Remember the consensus of current scholarship dates this letter's origin to the late first century and ascribes its authorship to a Jewish Christian well-educated in Greek rhetoric and skilled in writing. James is very straightforward here in his insistence that genuine faith is inseparable from good works. This is the apex of the author's argument in that regard. I gotta tell you, as a guy who competed in formal, structured academic debate in high school and college, I have nothing but high praise for the way the rhetoric is structured and composed. There is very little, if any, room left to put together a counter-argument that would be at all defensible. Before I read the passage, I want to point to what I think is meant to be quite shocking language here. When you hear, faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead, try to put yourself in Palestine in the late first century. Step out of our modern isolation from death and its after-effects. Here's what I mean. In contemporary Western culture, when one dies, there is a whole commercial enterprise that is set in motion to separate the living from the effects of death. A corpse is removed from its place of death. It is refrigerated to minimize the rate of decomposition. Then it might be either embalmed or cremated so that the mourners are relieved of experiencing the physical degradation that comes after death. Death in the first century in the Middle East was nowhere near as sanitized. Surviving family members were most often charged with dealing with the corpse. No refrigeration existed, and it was and remains a hot region. There is no evidence that cremation was a practice of the Israelites. Generally, burial was accomplished within a day of one's death, and for good reason. When you or I hear of someone's death, we mourn, of course, but we rarely, if ever, have immediate reactions based on personally dealing with the physical consequences of the death. Contact with a corpse, human or animal, would result in first-century Palestine in one being ritually unclean. I suspect that dead was a more viscerally powerful word for those who first read James than it is for us. Perhaps if we substitute the word putrid for death or dead, we get a more accurate picture of the word's impact for a first-century Jew. Enough already. Here is the day's reading from the letter of James. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister has nothing to wear and has no food for the day, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and eat well, but you do not give them the necessities of the body, what good is it? 
so also faith of itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Indeed, someone might say, you have faith and I have works. Demonstrate your faith to me without works, and I will demonstrate my faith to you from my works. The Word of the Lord. The last sentence of this passage always catches my imagination. Demonstrate your faith to me without works. To me, that sounds impossible on a practical level. And if I am reading the Gospels correctly and interpreting the actions of Jesus properly, all faith must have practical consequences. The statement reminds me of an old joke about a very devout Catholic man driving to Sunday Mass on a very busy freeway. It's San Diego, so everybody's doing about 85. Up ahead, just barely squeezed into a tiny space on the shoulder of the road, he sees a woman standing in front of her car, which has smoke pouring out from under the hood. He can see at least three very frightened children in the car. So he pulls in behind her and shouts out his window, I'd like to help, but I'm on my way to church. James has just told us that for us to qualify to claim faith, we must be prepared to give or do what is necessary to relieve the distress or suffering of those who are vulnerable. James is neither gentle nor subtle in addressing this issue. I'm going to paraphrase the verse that immediately follows what the lectionary gives us for this Mass. Here it is. You believe in God. Good for you. Even demons believe in God. In the next verse, he addresses his reader as you ignoramus. Clearly, the writer has some passion about this. The cost of discipleship is tangible action, charitable action, right action. Do you want a word to drop into conversation at your next party or formal dinner? You all know correct belief is orthodoxy. Correct action is orthopraxy. Given the biblical preference for care of the poor and vulnerable, Orthopraxy necessarily involves time, treasure, and comfort. Finally, please note that nowhere does James tell us we give only from our excess. Here's your James question. What was the most recent thing you did to bring mercy or caring to one who was suffering? What are you doing today? Now we come to the Gospel, and there's a lot going on today. Mark gives us a scene that many scholars refer to as the turning point of Mark's Gospel. Jesus does quite literally turn. He's been teaching and healing in the Gentile territories north of Jerusalem. Last week's Gospel passage had him going from Tyre, northwest of the Sea of Galilee on the Mediterranean coast, to Sidon farther north on the Mediterranean coast, then inland and south to the Sea of Galilee, to the area of the Decapolis. 
Now he and his disciples are heading north again toward Caesarea Philippi. The company is racking up some mileage. From the region of Caesarea Philippi, they will turn to the south, toward Jerusalem. But still, in today's passage, they are traveling in Gentile territory. Up to this point, Mark has shown us a Jesus who teaches, preaches, and effects miraculous healings and demonstrates the limitless provision that God offers mankind. After the turn toward Jerusalem, we will see only two more healings. Jesus instead turns his attention to teaching his followers what it truly means to be who he is and what his salvific life will entail. He begins to teach most explicitly that the next stage in the life he is living will be one of great suffering. The way of God's anointed one is the way of the cross. On the road, Jesus asks his disciples what the people are saying about him. And then, when he asks his own disciples what they think of him, Peter answers, You are the Christ. Again, Jesus asks that there be no public mention of this identity. This is characteristic of Mark. We read of Jesus moving quickly away from crowds after a healing or other miracle. Last week, after the healing of the deaf and mute man, he ordered him and the crowd to say nothing of the event. This week, he warns the disciples not to reveal the truth that Peter has just spoken. Mark then shifts the dialogue to the first of three times in his gospel that Jesus predicts his own passion, death, and resurrection. There is a direct parallel here to the suffering servant in the portion of Isaiah that we heard earlier. Given this hard teaching of the price Jesus will soon pay, Peter quickly seeks to reject it, earning a stern rebuke from Jesus, and a rather public one at that. With this detail in the story, we get another suggestion of the relationship between the evangelist Mark and Peter. There is consensus that Mark spent much time with Peter and that his gospel contains much that is characteristic of Peter's own typical self-deprecation around his own slowness to comprehend Jesus' teachings and his failures as a disciple. If you're interested in patterns within gospels, you might want to know that we are now in what can be interpreted as a Markan sandwich. That's the popular name attached to Mark's use of a literary technique formerly known as interpretive intercalation. There's another cocktail party conversation stopper for you. This is a literary device involving enclosing one narrative stream or motif inside another. In this case, immediately before the passage we read for this Mass, Mark has told us the story of Jesus restoring sight to a blind man. All that happens after Peter's identification of Jesus as the Messiah, all three of the passion predictions contained in this gospel, these all conclude with another healing of a blind man, Bartimaeus. Each of the two enclosing stories of blindness turned to sight, each of them also is the end of a significant section of Mark's drama of Jesus' ministry. Meanwhile, 
back in the current story. Peter has been chastised by Jesus for wanting to deny the hard truth of the way to the cross. Jesus immediately broadens the audience, but refuses to soften the message. As he calls together all those following him, he tells them that to follow him requires self-denial and bearing a cross. In this is the message James later proclaims. To follow Jesus means to put one's self-interest aside in favor of serving others. As a good way to wrap up preparing to hear this gospel passage together at Mass, I'll leave you with segments of a 1,500-year-old sermon. These are the words of St. Caesarius, who was Bishop of Arles in the early 6th century. When the Lord tells us in the Gospel that anyone who wants to be his follower must renounce himself, the injunction seems harsh. We think he is imposing a burden on us. But an order is no burden when it is given by one who helps in carrying it out. To what place are we to follow Christ if not to where he has already gone? We know that he has risen and ascended into heaven. There, then, we must follow him. If we are his members, why should we despair of arriving there ourselves? Would you follow Christ? Then be humble as he was humble. Do not scorn his lowliness if you want to reach his exaltation. Human sin made the road rough, but Christ's resurrection leveled it by passing over it himself. He transformed the narrowest of tracks into a royal highway. Two feet are needed to run along this highway. They are humility and charity. And that's about enough for this week, don't you think? I pray that you are able to gather in community, in person or online, for the Eucharist this week. Please take care of yourselves, physically and spiritually. And may the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, descend upon you with great blessing and remain with you forever.